following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I want to take a few minutes uh, to look at Psalms 129 through 131. Don't worry, they're not all like Psalm 119. They're, they're shorter psalms. And I want to take a few minutes this morning to look at these psalms and consider... Christian hope. Consider Christian hope. So I'm going to read through all three. You can follow along and pray and then work through some of these things together. Psalm 129, the word of God says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Lord God, take these minutes that we have together, uh, sitting under your word and speak to us through it. May you challenge and convict, encourage, bring joy and hope, a steadfast faith with what you have for us in these psalms. We thank you, God, for being our all-sufficient Lord and Savior. Do the work that only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I trust you each enjoyed uh, this week of holidays and your Christmases. I don't know what those all looked like for you, if they felt um, pretty much normal or a little bit abnormal, a little bit different this year than in other years, Um, but I hope that uh, they were good. There was some time of of rest, and maybe you're coming out from your sugar high even still uh, with the stuff that we ate. We had a nice time as a family with some birthdays and celebrating some birthdays in the family, and then uh, a relatively quiet 
Christmas, which was a little bit abnormal, but enjoyable nonetheless. But um, somehow we ended up with the same amount of food um, and junk food, I mean really good food, but junk food, um, then maybe even normal. We <laughs> end up with like more of it than normal and there's fewer people digging into it. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with that a little bit uh, myself, the sugar high, because <coughs> it's hard to say no to that good food. Um, so uh, again, I trust that it has been an enjoyable week. Those of you that maybe are uh, connecting with us uh, by live stream away out of town now, but jumping in this morning, trust that your uh, week has been good and you've enjoyed time with family and friends elsewhere. We're praying that you um, arrive back home safely. So we just read Psalms 129 through Psalms 131. We actually, I don't know if you noticed, we sang Psalm 130 a moment ago, song I will wait for you. Uh, But I want us to spend a few minutes today in those Psalms uh, to be challenged and encouraged Uh, like I said a minute ago, around just the idea of our Christian hope. Um, You know, we're finding ourselves in the last Sunday of 2020. Uh, We round the bend into a new year. Um, And so we have a tendency to reflect, consider, and make plans. Uh, And so I think this is a good passage for us to be in this morning. Um, It is funny and strange maybe strange, maybe sad in certain ways too, how we tend to, as it comes to hope, we tend to put some hope in just like the turning of a calendar, just the turning into a new year. And we have this idea that like uh, a new year equals maybe a fresh start, um, maybe some um, newfound resolve or something like that. And there is beneficial things to that for sure. But I think it's funny even seeing online and social media recently just the general consensus is like, let's get 2020 behind us. Let's get into what is inevitably going to be the goodness of a new year, right? Let's just get done with the past and get around the corner to something good. Um, we were joking uh, between services with somebody that, like, I think there might be, like, this thought of, like, we're on a burning ship. Quick, let's jump off. Um, but I don't know. Like, the only thing to jump onto might be another burning ship around the corner. We don't know. And that's why it's good to talk about Christian hope. When you think about hope, though, there's an aspect maybe you think like Christian hope. Why are we going to the Psalms? Like, isn't the New Testament full of thoughts on hope, faith? Why would we plop down in the middle of Israel's songbook when these New Testament writers have so much to offer us in the subject at hand? Um, that, that's, that's a relevant question, and I can't deny the fact that I actually thought that a few times when I was studying and working in the psalm, and I was thinking, oh man, go down the rabbit hole of Christian hope in the New Testament. There's so many good places to go. Why am I trying to do what I'm doing here in the psalms? Um, nevertheless, I kept coming back to them. Um, I, on one hand, I wanted this time to be somewhat like devotional in thought, not like a full blown sermon maybe as we normally think of it and also I'm um, in the process of trying to redeem myself from like a 70 minute some sermon back last time I preached in September so you know definitely the focus was devotional so that we keep it to a certain time. Um, So on one hand I was thinking of that and we tend to run to the Psalms right we tend to run to the Psalms as we think of kind of like devotional type of thoughts Um, but honestly the reality of it is that the Psalms tug at our whole being. They tug at our minds, our hearts. And so it's good and right for us to go here. Uh, 
here in these Psalms, the Spirit is getting at us through the use of poetry, through story, through analogy, through raw emotion. And so it's, it's right that we look at these Psalms for a few minutes to talk about Christian hope. Uh, before we jump into some of the content, let me just kind of help us understand the, the purpose and the setting, the arrangement of these Psalms. I think it will help us as we read and um, talk about them this morning and uh, God willing meditate on, meditate on them this week as well. Um, how many of you have or maybe at one point had a collection of songs specifically designated for road trips? Anybody have like a road trip playlist or maybe a road trip mixed tape? Yeah? Okay. So some of us do. And I think even if you don't specifically, there's probably something in you that like you're in a certain stretch of highway. Maybe you're in a specific vehicle. Um, and, and there's just maybe at certain points like a desire to listen to a certain song. Um, maybe it's a song that you would never listen to on any other occasion, and yet there's this maybe memory or something about the setting that's just like, ah, this, this track just fits really well with it. Um, I can remember uh, driving to see Sue in, the, in, our, in our dating years, uh, driving uh, from Georgia up to Indiana uh, to see Sue, sometimes driving from Indiana to Wisconsin together uh, to go to school. And I had, there were specific stretches of highway and there were just specific things that came together to be like, I want to listen to certain songs. Um, and and uh, I did so proudly as I cruised down the road in my Pontiac Bonneville with my uh, Discman Velcroed to the dashboard. Uh, that's how long ago that was. Uh, <coughs> but there are things just for us as individuals that we like um, as we travel to consider and listen to. Um, and it's even a little bit of a cultural phenomenon, right? Like if we went to our music app on our phones, we'd probably find road songs playlist just already there, already curated for us, right? And though we might not like some of the songs in a playlist, we'd be like, ah, that one doesn't do it for me, whatever, skip through it. There are going to be some that even just culturally speaking as a people, we would resonate with and be like, yes, that's the perfect road song, right? Well, what we have done is we have jumped right into the middle of what is essentially uh, a road song track list for Israel. Uh, Israel had... Uh, not just as individuals, but the nation as a whole, built into their rhythms of life and built into what God had called them to do, uh, trips, uh, journeys where they went from wherever they lived in Judea to Jerusalem. That happened for any good Jew at least three times a year in the spring for Passover. They would head from wherever they were to Jerusalem uh, to the festivals and feasts of Passover. Then in the summertime, they would head back again to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals surrounding Pentecost. And then in the fall, maybe around harvest time, there were the feasts and festivals again back at Jerusalem um, for uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, a time of praising and thanking God for his provision for them. So that was a reality for, for Israel and as they traveled, as individuals, as families maybe, and sometimes probably as whole villages essentially like packing up and making the trek to Jerusalem, they, over the years of doing that, uh, developed songs that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem, something in the midst of 
um, probably the tediousness and um, boringness of the trips at some point. Um, ta some times of uh, probably like harrowing parts of the journey and different things. They had songs that they would sing collectively as the people uh, of God, and they resonated with them. But it wasn't just that they had like certain music that they, they liked, and they were like, hey, let's sing this song because we like the melody of it so much. There was purpose in these songs. These songs were known as Psalms of Ascent. Um, now, that's not like ascent, as in like it's the uh, American version of sing a song of sixpence. It's not that. It's ascent, like to go up, okay? So these songs were psalms of ascent to go up. Now, there was a literal aspect to that, because pretty much from wherever you lived compared to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. So there was the elevation realities that their trek was upward and an incline to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount there, where there gatherings and their rhythms of worship as a people took place. But in light of that reality, and along with that reality, these songs over time came to serve a purpose of analogy for actually speaking of life as a disciple, life as a pilgrim, life lived under God's reign with God-given purposes, a way of being, living and being in the world. And so these songs actually took on um, a giant metaphor for life as they moved towards God, kind of like that personal devotional life as individuals moved towards God in their journey of faith, but also collectively as a people, as the people moved towards God in their journey under the plan and promises of God in the history of redemption. As they looked down the road into the future when they would come to the true Zion, the true temple, of the living God, and there are other psalms that even speak specifically of that. And so these 15 psalms that run from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 make up this little mixtape or playlist for you younger ones, make up this little mixtape of road songs for Israel. Now I have um, never been so clever or artsy, maybe some of you have, but I've never been so clever or artsy as to like take my road song songs that I like on road trips and actually like build them in the and design them to be a metaphor for my life as a disciple of Christ. I've never created or curated a track list like that to be analogous of, of life as I take a trip. Um, but Israel did that. Israel used these songs in that way and sang them together as they took, undertook the journey towards God up to Jerusalem. Um, John Calvin said of these psalms that they are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And so these psalms speak in very human ways, um, not just to Israel in that time and to their lives, but to all of God's people's lives as pilgrims, as disciples, as we live here under God's good hand in God's good but utterly sin-stained world that he is working to make things um, new of. Now, as these songs were collected um, and edited over time and find their way into our scriptures as we have them today, not only did they take uh, 15 of these songs that they sang and build them into right in the middle of the Psalms here, this picture of all of life discipleship um, on their journeys, 
But the editors of those psalms were even more genius than that. And in those 15 psalms, they edited the psalms in such a way that each set of three psalms kind of tell a story or have a cycle within themselves. So if you were to ever go and read all the way through Psalm 120 and Psalm 134, you would maybe want to pick out the fact that in these sets of five sets of threes, there's a little bit of a cycle happening in each one. And the cycles go like this. The first in the set um, talks of situations of trial and distress or affliction. They speak of the reality of life under the sun, kind of that Ecclesiastes type of understanding, that things are hard. There is difficulty and suffering and persecution for God's people. The second of this cycle then looks in some way at God's power to save, God's rule and reign and his sovereignty over those situations and circumstances that the previous psalm spoke of. And then in light of these two realities converge in the third psalm, where oftentimes the third in these sets or cycles would speak of the, the pilgrim kind of being home, being content, being satisfied as he took the realities of life and the realities of who God was and worked them out and understood them for what they were. There was a place of true peace and rest, not just them looking down the road to that in their ultimate destiny, but even having and grasping some of that in their here and now because of the realities of what the previous two psalms had worked through. So Psalm 129 through 131 are one of those um, triads, okay, one of those cycles. Psalm 129 and a little bit of, of Psalm 132, as we'll see, they provide a commentary on real-life struggles, on what it means to be a disciple um, along the way in, uh, in this world. Psalm 130 then also heralds the Lord's ability as Lord and speaks of his gracious salvation. And then Psalm 131 speaks to contentedness and to satisfaction and rest that comes from the convergence of reality that we worked through in the previous two psalms. And so that's what I want to look at for a couple minutes is just pull out some of the aspects of what the psalmist is speaking to here and really the nation of Israel is singing to as they encourage one another, as they speak truth to one another, speaking of their journey of faith even as they walk a literal journey towards God and in their rhythms of worship. And I trust that as we do so, um, we will again um, be reminded of our Christian hope as God's children and encouraged for come what may, tomorrow and the weeks and months ahead. <clears throat> so jump back in the, the text with me for a couple minutes here. Uh, the psalmist <clears throat> speaks very clearly in Psalm 129 and a couple verses of Psalm 130 as well. Speaks very clearly to the hardships and groanings of life. He speaks to the fact that he has been greatly afflicted from his youth and then even calls all of Israel to agree with him and sing that along with him, that yes, even as a people, there has been much sorrow and affliction. Other aspects of speaking to the realities of suffering here, verse 3, the plowers plowing upon 
his back. It's as if somebody is laying face down in a field and oppressors and the wicked ones have put a team of horses to a plow and are just running that up and down a field that he happens to be laying in, just cutting open his back and making furrows in his back. Another way maybe to look at it is to consider one as the field or the dirt itself um, and experiencing the hardship and difficulty of this plowing being done, tearing up the earth. And it's being done by affliction, wickedness. So you have those aspects speaking to the harsh realities of what it means to be uh, a person of faith, to be a pilgrim, to be a disciple of Christ. Speaks to the fact that there is the reality of suffering. There is no getting around it. We know this, of course, as Christians. We don't always like it. We sometimes even try to get rid of suffering and affliction completely and think that the only blessed life or the only right life under God is one that is free of affliction. And yet, the stories of Israel, as well as the life of Christ and the words of Christ to us as his disciples, tell us that that's not the case. That it's not right to consider that a truly righteous life is one that is free from hard outside circumstances. I don't know all of you so well as to know how you would define the affliction that you've had, um, maybe from your youth. There might be difficulties and struggles that have come from the outside to you in the form of people, of abuse, of harsh systems, of harsh realities, different aspects of life. But in some way, I'm sure as you consider what the psalmist and Israel are thinking of about what their life, their lives individually and collectively, their history has looked like, that you in some way understand what your plight is that is similar to them, that you can, like the end of verse 1 and verse 2 says, you can join in singing with them. Yes, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. These difficulties from without are a part of what it means to be disciples of Christ because we are connected with Christ. And he walked that road of suffering and shame and temptation and hurt. And he said that all those that would be his disciples would experience the same. So in 129, we have these afflictions from without. The psalmist then speaks in Psalm 130 of the afflictions uh, within, so to speak. We find the psalmist in the depths crying out to the Lord, that the Lord would hear his voice and be attentive to his cries just for some mercy. We understand that it's in some way tied to not necessarily outside circumstances, though he can be crying from the depths in light of um, the realities of Psalm 129. But we also see in verse 3 of Psalm 130 that this depth, these depths that the psalmist finds himself in, his cry for the mercy of his Lord comes from the reality of his own iniquities, the difficulties and struggles and suffering from within, from our own hard hearts, from a life marked by sin in one way or another. 
fact, the psalmist recognizes that if the Lord would mark iniquities, if the Lord would actually um, take his iniquities and hold them against him, then he would not be able to stand. And so here we have the psalmist, and again, consider all of Israel heading towards Jerusalem to worship their God, singing of the realities of life, in a sense, maybe commiserating together that they have experienced this in their nation's history as people that have been afflicted from every side and also find their hearts hard, maybe a good amount of them loathing the thought of having to obey the law to head yet again up to Jerusalem and recognizing that their heart uh, was not soft towards the things of the Lord. So that's the reality that we see here. But another reality comes in. And this is key for us as believers. This is key for those that are gods. It's because on top of the reality of life, and we could spend more and more time cutting that every which way, but I think um, you can do that quite, quite well in your mind and heart too. In the midst of the realities that life is, for a disciple, is also the reality of our, our Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Sovereign One. So even sprinkled in with these realities of suffering, we also see glimpses of the reality of God and His work. So though there has been affliction from the time these folks were young, maybe there has been affliction for you in much of life in different ways. There's the reality that God's people can say that those afflictions from without have not prevailed against the disciple. They have not prevailed against the pilgrim. Though there are plowers plowing upon the backs of God's people, making long furrows, the Lord is righteous and he has cut the cords of the wicked. That's probably referring to the, the horse's harnesses. So as the horses are pulling the plow and this type of suffering is playing out, the righteous Lord comes and he severs those harnesses so that no longer can the wicked actually use the plow in, in, uh, to, their, to their desired intent. Um, and so the righteous Lord comes and cuts the cords of the wicked. There's also the reality that we see in the last few verses of Psalm 129 that though the wicked flourish in one sense, the best that can ever happen is that they flourish for a season. There is nothing that it actually produces in reality. So, as they built houses in the Judean land, they would oftentimes cut a section of sod or grass of some sort and bring it up to the roof of the housetop and lay it out so that there would actually be uh, protection there, green roofs long before we ever considered them to be, um, to be good things, right? Um, so they would make green, green roofs. And as they did this, there was the reality that for a certain period of time after they cut the sod out or whatever they grabbed and placed on the top of their home, that grass actually continued to grow a little bit and was like, whoa, what, what's going on, going on there? Are we going to have a meadow sprout up on our roof? Well, n no. That, that life that was there was still only life for a season. 
It ultimately would not bring about any type of um, grass that would be able to be um, taken and, and reaped or they would go and make hay on or anything like that. It's like uh, a little bit like us going to the store and uh, getting a, a maple sapling, bringing it home and, and finding the perfect setting in our yard for that little tree and getting it in just the right spot for sun, moisture, whatever it might be, and planting it, nurturing it, uh, trying to care for it in seasons maybe of too much rain or too much sun, not enough rain. Maybe um, trying to protect it from being trampled by uh, the dog or the kids running around playing. And you are doing your best to see that sapling flourish in its rightful place. And one day as you're tending that little sapling, you look up at your, your own gutter of your house that you haven't cleaned in a little while. And sprouting out of the one end of the gutter is a maple sapling. And that maple sapling looks every bit as good or maybe even a little bit better than the sapling that you've been tending for the last few weeks, giving your energies to. And this, this dumb little thing is sitting up in your gutter without any attention paid to it, and it's doing just fine. And in those moments, certain dejection uh, and despair can set, set in, right? And we see that in the Psalms as well. 72, 73... The psalmist talks about the fact, like, why, God? Why do the nations prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Why, why is it that I am yours and you say you are mine and go through life and it's just hardship after hardship? I'm just getting beat up in every way. I'm not in the right setting for this and whatever it might be. And yet here, the ones that are against you, the ones just kind of sitting up in the gutter, totally like doing their own thing, they're, they're, they're flourishing. <coughs> Here, the people of Israel actually sing an imprecatory prayer, like a, a, a songs wishing for God's wrath to pour out on injustice and wickedness. They actually sing it in such a way as to be reminded of the fact that though that's sometimes our outlook, though sometimes our outlook is to look and say, what is going on? Why is wickedness ruling the day? Why is affliction such a big part of my identity in my life? That to actually cry out and sing for God's justice to play out on earth is a way of trusting and hoping in a God who is righteous and is sovereign. They're actually able to remind each other that though they see these things taking place and though they don't just see it but experience it and feel it in every way, the best that happens is that that wickedness flourishes for a season. But it doesn't produce anything at the end. It doesn't actually accomplish the purposes of the wicked or the wicked one. And so they are able to ask for their God, our God, to do his good promised work in the world. They're able to see their affliction in a light that says, I'm, I'm getting it in every way right now, it seems. And yet I know that even though that's what my reality is right now, when everything is said and done, there will be perfect justice. God will indeed redeem his people. God will play out right vengeance on all that has turned its back and ignored and rebelled against his goodness and his righteousness. This seems maybe awkward to us a little bit. It's not something that we like to um, 
talk of in one sense, right? Like this jealousy and vengefulness of, of our God. And yet it flows out of his love and his justice. We should rightly want all injustices and all wickedness to be taken care of. And not taken care of as in swept under a rug, but actually dealt with. What's interesting is that as we consider our Savior, we know that the Gospels show this to us. The author of Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus has been tempted in every way like us. He's been afflicted in every way that his people have been afflicted. He actually purposefully rehearsed and interacted with the history of Israel in his life. That he would go and spend time in the wilderness and be tempted, but would not grumble, would not complain, but actually be victorious over the evil one in those settings to show that he was actually the true Israel to come and do everything that the nation of Israel could not and did not do. But he was afflicted in every way. Isaiah prophesies about even the literal suffering and the physical torment and anguish that our Savior went through. In a sense, he literally had the wicked plowers plow upon his back, and he was bruised with stripes. But the righteous Lord used those things. The righteous Lord used those events in the life of Christ to bring about redemption. Jesus could sing with us, that there has been affliction from youth. That it seems that sometimes like everything is against us and him. And yet, wicked did not prevail against him. The righteous Lord cut the cords of the wicked so that even in the midst of them trying to do what they desired to do, they were powerless. Those who hated Zion at the cross were put to shame and turned backward. The best that they could do to Jesus was something that looked for a moment like it would be accomplished, that it would be, uh, that it would fulfill what, the, what uh, the evil one desired. For a moment, it looked like that was going to take place. And yet it did not accomplish its purposes. God's purposes stood firm. For us, too, as disciples, we must see things this way. We must recognize that for us as Christians, there is, as Matt read for us in Romans 5 as well, now peace with God. And because there is peace with God, even suffering serves a purpose. Even the difficulties of life are not just a necessary evil that we just bide our time in them, hoping for things to get better, knowing that they will get better in the end. There's a reality to the fact that we are called to rejoice when difficulties and sufferings come because in the midst of them, our sovereign Lord works and uses the desires of the wicked to actually accomplish his purposes. What hope we have in that reality that the wicked cannot hope in. Additionally, we have hope because Our God is full of steadfast love. 
And rather than marking our iniquities to a point where we could not stand and cannot stand, there's forgiveness. And through this forgiveness, there is plentiful redemption. The Lord's steadfast love works to take care of and conquer internal struggles and the iniquities of the heart. We indeed cannot stand before a holy and righteous God if he would mark our iniquities. But those iniquities have been given to Christ. He bore them on our behalf and he has given us his righteousness. And so though we find ourselves sometimes in the depths of despair as we continue to recognize our hard hearts that are prone to wander, that are prone towards temptation and giving in to temptation and prone to sin and unbelief. We rejoice that we can stand before our Lord, that in him there is forgiveness and plentiful redemption. We've just passed through the Christmas season and we recognize in that Christmas story that when the angel appeared to Joseph, and told Joseph what was taking place in the womb of Mary and for Joseph, therefore, to respond a certain way to what was happening there. That one would be born of Mary and that this one, Joseph was told, was to be named Jesus because he would save his people. He would bear the iniquities of his people. And so from the Lord comes plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So again, we have these realities that seem disconnected and yet work together. The reality of our lives here as pilgrims under the sun, the realities of affliction from without, and the realities of sin from within. But in the midst of all that, the reality of who God is, what he has said about himself to us, what he is doing in his world and in us and what he has promised to do that is proven through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. All of these things work towards a sense of confident hope, calmness, satisfaction for God's people, for pilgrims on the way. Psalm 131, the first verse speaks of someone that understands their place in God's big world. They understand their place in what God is capable of and what his power does and uh, how they are powerless to do anything about it. This person says that their heart is not lifted up and their eyes raised too high. They don't think too much of themselves, their own abilities. They do not occupy themselves with things too great and too marvelous. The idea of trying to fix things or trying to make things work that are on a cosmic level even. Trying to handle things that are outside of our control. The psalmist says that he knows his place. And it is a place then that works itself out in contentedness, satisfaction, rest, peace, and hope. 
There are a couple of analogies that are used to help us understand this cycle of discipleship in the pilgrim life too. In Psalm 130, the psalmist talks about waiting for the Lord and hoping in his word more than watchmen for the morning. The next psalm talks about the fact that his soul has been calmed and quieted like a weaned child with its mother. So what are these analogies getting at? Well, the idea of waiting for the Lord, uh, I think sometimes this, this, this idea of waiting for the Lord, um, we can easily misuse that idea. I've, I've heard it used this way before. Jordan, I'm in the midst of circumstances that I don't understand. They're really, really hard. I don't like them. I don't know what God's doing in them. And I, I know I have to say that he's doing something in them. I, I know that's happening in some way, but I am, I'm in despair. I don't know what to do. And so I'm just going to wait for the Lord to speak. And in that sense, the waiting is kind of a like curling up in the fetal position in a corner, like, oh my goodness, things are scary. This reality of life and affliction, I don't know what to do with it. And so I'm going to paint it with some religiosity maybe and hide in a corner until God just makes it go away and I can step out in some confidence again. Maybe sometimes it can be used this way, and I've heard it used this way as well, that there's a desire to love and serve God. There's an understanding of God's plentiful redemption. But there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of like, I don't, I don't know what that then means. I, I know that I'm, that I'm saved. I know that I am his and he is mine. And I know what that means at the end. I know what that means for my ultimate salvation. But as for this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, I don't know how to connect the dots. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so I'm just going to wait on the Lord. I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs and wait because he hasn't told me his will yet. He hasn't told me specifically what my life is supposed to look like in the next day. And so there's a sense of abdication or complacency there. When the psalmist uses it here in Psalm 130, and if you would read through the Psalms, you would see this idea of waiting on the Lord is prolific through the Psalms. That's not what the psalmist is getting at, not either one of those trajectories of either couching fear and hopelessness in some Christianese or saying that we're just going to wait for some like announcement in the skies for what my life is supposed to be and what I'm supposed to put my hands to for the next day. That's not what waiting on the Lord speaks of. Here, the psalmist kind of plays out what it means to wait for the Lord with the analogy of being a watchman for the morning. What does a watchman do? Well, a watchman does some important things, but some pretty mundane things, right? Imagine being somebody that's like third shift <laughs> uh, on a city wall called to protect uh, part of the city called to look out for its welfare um, in those days, maybe against vandals, against some army that wants to invade at night. And so they're called to a specific task. They know their marching orders. But there are certain things that are just out of their control. They can't cause the sun to come up any faster so that their shift can be over. 
They can't cause so many things that are just part and parcel of life and the way the world works. They can't cause it to change or work out the way they want it to work out. They can't speak into it or have their hand into it to ultimately be powerful over it. But they work and they serve under a whole host of realities of their world. They work confidently. They put their mind and heart and hand to the task that is given to them and they do it well. Also, a watchman is pretty confident about the fact that at some point his shift's going to end. He does not fret away his time on the wall looking out for the welfare of the city. He does not spend his time up there being anxious about the fact of whether the morning is going to come or not. These things are already in the hands of the sovereign one, and so he works within that system and that understanding and has a confident expectation, a confident hope that morning will come again. <coughs> As disciples on the way in our own journey of faith, Waiting for the Lord looks like confident expectation for what God has said he will do and is doing. Not trying to meddle in it, not trying to fix it, not being anxious over it, but living confidently underneath it. Knowing that those systems and the workings of our world and our cosmos are upheld and sustained by the hand of the Lord. The disciple in this scenario understands his or her place. There's a confident hope in what God has said about himself, what God has said he would do, and in the reality of seeing it played out already. So the psalmist can say that he waits for the Lord and in his word he hopes, like a watchman for the morning. As Christians, we're called to lots of things. There should never be a time as Christians where we just hide away because we don't know what God wants us to do. There are never a time as Christians that we should hide away because we're unsure about the workings of the world and what's going to happen because God has spoken. He has told us what his plans have been since before time began. We have watched them play out in history. We have watched them play out in our lives. And we confidently hold that his word is just as sure for what is yet to come. And in the midst of that, then, as Christians, we open scripture and we find a whole host of things we're called to. We find a whole host of things that function, so to speak, as our task at hand, as what it means for us to be watchmen for the warning, what it means to be people that wait on the Lord. So, We wait on the Lord. We hope in his word. We look like watchmen for the morning because he is a God of steadfast love and in him is plentiful redemption. What confidence this brings. Certainly it makes sense with Psalm 131 then, right? That this person understands their place, understands their marching orders. Though they are unsure of a whole host of things in one way, right? We don't know what tomorrow brings in one sense. In another sense, we know a lot of what tomorrow will bring, and we know a lot of what tomorrow cannot bring, too. And all of that leads us to a quiet, calmed soul, quiet, calmed life that is nevertheless confident 
and built on a steadfast hope. It looks like a weaned child with its mother, the psalmist says, which to me isn't a big help. I'm like, what, what a weaned child with its mother? What, what are you trying to get at with that? But consider a child that is utterly dependent on its mother for sustenance. Consider a child having gone through the motions of being utterly dependent on its mother, but is growing at the same time and is more aware of its surroundings to the point that it's finding its sustenance still in the life of its mother. But maybe a phrase that is more helpful to us as we consider like a well-rounded person, a well-rounded child even. Someone that is still very young and childlike in certain ways, but as they're growing, they're not acting childish. They have a very well-rounded childlike dependency on the ones in whom they're supposed to depend on. It does not lead them to be anxious in any way for their circumstances. It does not lead them to try and usurp the authority of the one they're depending on and jump in and overpower them. But a well-rounded, even young person or child understands their place. They understand that they're loved and cared for. They understand that they're dependent on the one that is loving them and caring for them. And so they have a calm and quieted soul. It does not mean that they're immature. It does not mean that they react in ways that would go against the, the flow of what these psalms are bringing to us. But they're ones that understand their place and still, yet still, are dependent on another. The psalmist says, and all of Israel declares as they sing these songs together, that they too understand their place in the world. They understand their place in the plan of God. They live, they move, they function, they experience difficulties and afflictions, they wrestle with the hardness of their own hearts and the iniquities that continue to pop up. But they know their place in all of it. They know what God is doing in all of it. And so they look like a watchman for the morning. And they look like a child weaned, a well-rounded child. Their soul, their heart, their being, who they are exudes these things. And in the midst of these realities, that are both an already for Israel in some ways and for us as Christian disciples in some ways and yet not yet in other ways, things that still are not fully in place, still are not fully redeemed in us. There's confidence, there's satisfaction, there's hope, hope building faith, faith building hope, and still the call to continue to hope in the Lord. So these Psalms speak to us in any number of ways around the idea of Christian hope. We can turn to passages in the New Testament, as I said at the outset, that teach us about hope, but they really springboard off of these ideas here. For one, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 through 12, in his sermon, speaks in a very similar way as the psalmist here and these, what these songs are doing, speaks to the reality of suffering, speaks to the reality of God's working through Christ, speaks to the steadfast hope that, are, that is true of Christian disciples. That 
author there in Hebrews talks about faith being the assurance of things hoped for. Though those things hoped for are not seen yet in so many ways. And then again, we have an analogy of many that have gone before us, brothers and sisters that have walked real lives in real history and have faced afflictions of every kind. Afflictions that in certain ways go far beyond any afflictions that we've experienced or maybe ever will experience. Afflictions to the point of shedding their own blood, being torn in two, sawn asunder type of afflictions. And yet in the midst of that, there was a quiet, confident hope. These folks did not get to taste the promises of God in every way. They were, as the author of Hebrews says, looking ahead to a better country. But the realities of their hope, that looking ahead to a better country, impacted their lives in the present in every way so that they could face affliction in such a way as to know that it would not ultimately destroy them Wicked would not ultimately prevail against them. That the Lord, through the work of Christ, had indeed cut the cords of the wicked. That even Christ would come and experience the same things as us for the joy that was set before him. That he would despise the shame and ridicule of the life he lived and being led to the point of death on the cross. That even for Christ, there's a sense of confident hope in the word and the will of the Father that he would walk in obedience his entire life. We could turn to numbers of other passages that speak the same thing to us, but we'll kind of couch it here and land things here. A couple thoughts as we close then. These psalms themselves are helpful just in the way they're laid out. If, if nothing else, at the very least, we can look at these psalms and just their, their existence and the way that they're laid out. They remind us of life as pilgrims, life as disciples of Christ. They call us to take time to live thoughtfully, consciously, and with commitment in light of what God has done for us. Our identity in Christ is, is all-encompassing. It impacts our whole life now and our whole life to come. So as you reflect on these things this week, I'd ask you, are you living thoughtfully, consciously, and committedly, if that's a word, in the world? Does our Christian hope drive us to see and interpret and respond to our circumstances and surroundings as true Christians? Or are we disintegrated in different ways? Is there a disconnect between truth and life? Is there a disconnect between trusting and our witness? Do our lives follow this life cycle of a pilgrim? Or do we short circuit? Do we find ourselves kind of in the spin cycle of just the affliction part, just Psalm 129 and just the difficulties and the depths of despair because of our iniquities? Or do we overlay on those things the reality of the gospel, the reality of God's loving kindness and the plentiful redemption we have in Christ? See, it's not so much that we need somebody to come and be a painter, somebody to come and present us with this big idea of what it could be, like 
broaden your thoughts and open your imaginations to what could be if we would just get through this, if we would just heal, if we would just do these things. The world is full of people calling us to those things and painting false pictures of hope, telling us to just do a little bit more or try something different and everything will be right in the world. We don't need anybody to come do that for us. Through the work of God and Christ, instead of just allowing imaginations to flow, we are given a set of glasses in which to look at truth and reality. What we really needed was to be able to see, to have our blindness taken care of, so that we would look through the right set of glasses, so that in the midst of despair, difficulties, without and within, we would see God at work in all of it, that we would cling tight to the promises of God because the promises of God being worked out in us and being worked out because of our union with Christ takes suffering and affliction that has its end in nothingness. They serve no point. And it brings it to the fact that all of these things are for our good and for the glory of God. And so these psalms and this cycle of life and considering our journey, just as Israel did long ago, it helps us to see correctly in the midst of life. Meditate this week on whether or not your life looks like a watchman for the morning, looks like the calm and quiet of a weaned child. Do they epitomize our activity under the Lord's control? Do we have a peaceful dependence on our Maker and our Savior? Do we rightly, biblically wait for the Lord? Or does our waiting for the Lord look like something that's, that's unbiblical? These psalms, again, are not just for the individual and our life towards God, my personal relationship with God, but they are, again, analogous of that's people as a whole, for us as the church. What does our life together, what does our life collectively look like? What does it say to the world around us? How does it respond to wickedness meant to do harm to God's people? The Old Testament scholar uh, Walter Brueggemann says this, and um, I, I would say from like a pastoral standpoint, there's a lot of his that I would probably spit rather than chew, a lot of his work. <laughs> uh, and yet this is a good thought for us here as we leave this morning. He says that the prophetic task of the church is to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and express hope in a society that lives in despair. As the people of God in our journey of discipleship, in our living, in our speaking, in our doing, in our acting, these things all say something about how we see the world, about who our authority is, about what we are trusting in, about where our hope lies. Maybe for us in our lifetime, this year more than ever shows the illusion and the denial and the despair of the world around us. It brings to light the whole host of false hopes that the world clings to and tries to concoct themselves and many times what the church finds itself holding to as well. But church, will we be a people that because we are living these truths out, having a true Christian hope, will we tell truth to a society that lives in illusion? Will we grieve and have compassion and walk that out 
in a society that practices denial? And will we express hope? Will our lives exude hope in a society that lives in despair? Because of what has already been accomplished and what is still ahead for us as God's children, we have a present hope. And so true biblical hope fuels our lives, fuels our activities, and it fuels our mission as a church. These are just a few thoughts that spring to me, uh, to my mind, and um, have been actually things that I'm, as much as anybody, need to hear and be reminded of. And so I hope and pray that uh, the Spirit of God uses these things in our lives too as we go. Um, The joys of ending a year and starting anew, the realities of um, just again thinking of the goodness of God and seasons and rhythms of life, Um, may we handle those correctly but have our hope truly founded on where it needs to be for the coming year ahead as individuals and as the church of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for these moments together. Thank you for your word. May it be true of us that it is in your word we hope. We stand before you confidently because of your steadfast love, because with you there is forgiveness of sins and plentiful redemption. You have healed your people from their iniquity. So we worship you and we pray, Spirit, that you would work these realities out in our lives, that our way of being in the world would be such that we are indeed your disciples in every way, that we would be changed further into Christ's image, and that we would be witnesses to a lost and dying world that desperately needs the hope that is found in the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.